Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 147 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Lois J. DeVries, Executive Director of the Sustainable Gardening Institute and Library, about sustainable gardening practices. The plant profile is on Golden Ragwort, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Dr. Alan Armitage, who returns to share the last word on annual plant snobs. This episode, we're joined by Lois DeVries, Executive Director, Sustainable Gardening Institute and Library. Welcome, Lois. Hi, Kathy. It's great to be with you today. Thanks so much for the opportunity to speak with your listeners about the Sustainable Gardening Library. Well, it's great to have you, and we've known each other for, I'm going to say, well over a decade. We're both members of GardenCom, uh, used to be known as the Garden Writers Association. Right, right. I've especially enjoyed the Region 2 meetings in the Delmarva area. Mm-hmm. So uh, for those listeners, the Garden Communicators Association uh, is divided up into regions, and there's international region, of course, but our region of the Mid-Atlantic uh, is basically New Jersey through D.C., and we're a close-knit region. We get together, hopefully, we try to once or twice a year and have local garden tours and meetups, and so we get to know each other pretty well over the years and get to see some pretty gorgeous gardens, right, Lois? That's right. Hmm. So before we dive into... Uh, your project, Sustainable Gardening Institute. Let's talk a little bit about you and your background. And on the podcast, we like to ask, are you a green thumb? Were you born with chlorophyll in your veins? Well, that's hard to say. I've I've killed my fair number of plants, but haven't we all? (laughs) My grandparents uh, had a garden, and that was very early urban type of setting. I grew up in Jersey City, and uh, my grandmother had a garden. Uh, my grandparents owned an apartment house and, that we lived in, and um, the backyard, one half of it was a rose garden. That was my grandmother's thing, and the other half of it had plants that over time I grew to hate, which was hydrangeas and lily of the valley, but I got over that, so um, I have plenty of hydrangeas here now. And why did you hate that section of the yard? I think because Grandma's flowers were so much prettier, and um, you know, hydrangeas back then were not what they are today. The you know the snowball bushes, I just I just didn't like them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Maybe they were sticks for about half the year. Right. Mm. And so when did you get into horticulture or garden communicating? Oh, my, Kathy. That's a long and winding road. So the combination for me, environmental interest, environmental sciences, and Uh, I don't really call myself a horticulturist because I don't have formal training in in that uh, subject matter, but I loved gardening and um, I had a fortuitous meeting at the American Society of Journalists and Authors conference one year with one of the editors of a national gardening magazine group. And I have a funny story about that. (laughs) My job as a field editor was to go out find gardens to uh, have someone come in and photograph and interview the people and then do a write-up for the magazines. And one of the first gardeners I visited was um, had drained a swampy area in his yard and diverted a stream. And at the time, I was 
chair of my environmental commission. And I don't know how much you know about this, but um, this is maybe like 10, 15 years ago, the state uh, Department of Environmental Protection put out every two weeks a list of violations and the locations of the violations. And, you know, there was constant penalties for people who did things like this. So at the time I was on my environmental commission and I, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> it was very conflicting because here I was on, you know, one of my very first outings, and here was a guy with two violations. And I, I thought for a moment, and I said, um, you know, uh, so when did you do this, you know? And he said 1970-something or another, and I thought, home free, the stormwater management rules in New Jersey didn't go into effect until the 1980s. So I thought, okay, you don't have to do anything about this. But uh, it really brought home to me how little many homeowners know about the environment and sustainable landscape practices, even though they know a lot about gardening. Hmm, interesting. And so what brought you to start uh, the online gardening library and the Institute? Oh, Kathy, that's another very long story. <laughs> well, we're here, we're here to listen to it, Lois. <laughs> so um, while I was on the Environmental Commission, I had the opportunity to commission some GIS maps for zoning, um, conservation easements, and our open space plan. And, you know, these were early days doing uh, electronic mapping as opposed to creating paper maps. And, you know, I didn't know how to do it, obviously, but I actually hired somebody from the Nature Conservancy to uh, do this for us. And, you know, I was just fascinated by the, the result of being able to see so much uh, information about the, uh, we have a very environmentally sensitive ecosystem a variety of ecosystems in our town. And um, so that that kind of stuck with me. And then later on, when I started doing the gardening work, as you may know, uh, we had the sustainability committee in GardenCom. And we were working on a project, um, the sustainability committee vetted the articles that were written on sustainability for our newsletter. And we were having a particularly difficult time with one of those articles. And um, so I started doing my own research online. And what I found was um, every single blog article reference that I could find in like the first 10 to 15 pages on Google was all just people copying from other people, copying from other people, copying from other people, the same information. And when I dug a little deeper, what I found was that all of that information was coming from the same place. And, you know, I don't want to name any names or anything like that, but it was, a you know, a group that was specifically paid to promote, we'll just say a product. And um, so that was very disturbing. And, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, the subconscious works. We don't know what's going on in there. And, you know, we kind of killed the article. I didn't think very much more about it, except, you know, that I was frustrated. And um, evidently, my subconscious was doing all kinds of work without me knowing anything about it. And one day, I, woke, I literally woke up and I said, what we need is a sustainable gardening library. And <laughs> that's literally how the library came to be. Uh, it was one of these things, I wouldn't call it an epiphany, but, you know, a, a flash of insight where all of a sudden I saw the whole thing and 
what the whole thing is, is uh, the ability to show on a map the locations of providers of information about sustainable landscape practices, you know, beneficial insects, um, soils, water conservation, composting, you know, all the all the usual suspects of sustainable gardening by their location superimposed on a, a USDA plant hardiness zone map. Now, we're getting a little nerdy here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously it's not for somebody who just bought a house and has no idea about gardening. This is a little, you know, people need to be a little bit more interested either in environmental issues or uh, serious, you know, it's for serious gardeners. Hmm. And so out of that epiphany of needing this service because you weren't able to find that actual information, that's where it was born. And so before we dive into more about the library and what people can find there and how they could use it, Let's talk a little bit about where you garden and the town you refer to. So you are in Lafayette, New Jersey. And for those listeners who are outside the Mid-Atlantic, maybe listening from overseas, can you describe your climate, um, your growing zone, and actually also what you grow in your garden? Well, that's another long and winding story. Uh, technically, we're supposed to be in Zone 6B, but we're not. Uh, excuse me, 6A. Um, we're actually in Hardiness Zone 5B, uh, and nobody is ever going to convince me otherwise. Um, and we're in the the northernmost northwesternmost corner of New Jersey right where the three states of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York all meet up together. And um, our climate is, you know, temperate. We have very humid summers, uh, much, you know, much more so since uh, global warming and and all of the climate issues have been happening. Uh, We've had some seriously wet summers in the last few years. Uh, contrary to even our neighbors, you know, down around the Philadelphia area and even southern New Jersey, where they, you know, had some uh, drought warnings last year. So that's kind of uh, the weather, what the weather's like here. And usually we have snow, you know, we can have three feet of snow in one fell swoop, but uh, we had hardly any this past winter. It's been a very warm winter. Hmm. Yeah, same here down in D.C. We we got skipped by the snow, but I am not complaining about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was very happy with our winter overall. Um, and what do you grow in your home garden? Do you grow uh, edibles as well as ornamentals? Well, Dan built me some uh, raised beds, and I uh, have attempted to grow veggies in those in the past, uh, mostly tomatoes, like everyone else, there's there's nothing like the tomato you grow yourself, uh, even if if it costs fifty dollars for each tomato, <laughs> they taste so much better than what you can get at the store. But I've been migrating more towards fruits, and the last few years we've been able to get a few blueberries some strawberries and this year I'm doing an experiment. I've bought a, a Juliet dwarf um, cherry bush and uh, one of those cocktail fruit trees, fruit cocktail trees. Are you familiar with those, Kathy? Yeah, I call those the Frankenstein trees. <laughs> so they're the ones that, you know, you have one arm that might be a pear or an apple or different kinds of of fruit on different ones or different varieties of the same fruit, right? Right. And and I bought one for stone fruits. So it's apricots, plums, and peaches, and I think a nectarine. Um, they're, you know, they're not a true Frankenstein in that they're not GMO, but they're, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, peculiar, they're grafted trees. Yeah. 
so like, collected parts from other bodies is how I <laughs> of Frankenstein in that, in that case. And you referred to Dan, and we should let our listeners know who Dan is. Well, I I usually refer to him as the undergardener. He's my better half and uh, official hole digger. And I have to say, he's learned a lot about gardening in the time that we've the thirty years we've been together. So. Um, he started out where, oh God, I, I couldn't let him even pull weeds because out, out came my, uh, hibiscus plant, you know, like, no, no. One time he pulled, he did pull, um, a purple plum hibiscus out and threw it away. And I, when I realized it was gone, um, I was like, where did you put it? Where did you put it? And we, we uh, went to the pile and and dug it out and was able to actually rejuvenate it by getting it back in the hole. So nice. Well, yeah. I'm glad that was a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, we could probably do a whole episode on spouses or partners or uh, life mates who aren't gardeners <laughs> and those who are gardeners and what it's like to garden with each other in both situations because they both have their pros and cons, right? Yeah. If they were somebody who loved gardening, that might still be the difficulty there. So steering us back to the Sustainable Gardening Library, let's talk about how a serious home gardener would use it and access it. Well, I uh, actually, I think one of our newest apps in the library would be very helpful for somebody who was into their hardiness zones and ecosystems. And that's the Eco Regions app. Um, that combines, I'll, I'll be, be nerdy for just a second, that combines the EPA level three ecoregions with the USDA plant hardiness zones all in one map. And uh, the layers can be toggled on and off. So you can either just look at your plant hardiness zone, or if you really wanna know more, you can, um, toggle the ecoregions on by itself, or I like to look at them together. So so why do you need this? <laughs> well, I didn't know we needed this. This, this is another uh, interesting story. Uh, uh, Kathy, you know Cynthia B., another of our colleagues out in Utah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just think this is so uh, such a good example of the importance of networking and talking to other people and how the eco regions uh, app came about was that we were in a Facebook group together and she was complaining that um, it's all fine and good to be in the same hardiness zone as someone else. But if you're, have a different soil or a different type of ecosystem, what kind of plants you can put there are not the same. So when you go to the Ecoregions app, if you zoom in to where you live, you don't have to put your, um, you don't have to put your zip code in. All you have to do is zoom in to like where you live. And uh, the more you zoom in, the fewer numbers that you're going to see. So that's what you want. And when you click on your location, say your town, um, the hardiness zone that you're in, and some towns are like in three hardiness zones, um, we have discovered. And then an outline of the eco region will also light up. And a pop-up will come up to take you to the eco-regions, the EPA's eco-regions list. And if you go there, it will tell you what kind of soils are there, what the climate is, what the native vegetation is, what type of hydrology you have, what type of terrain, what type of wildlife, and even previous land use. So if something was a farm in the past or God forbid, a, you know, a brownfield or something like that, that's all going to be in there. And that 
what that does for folks is to give them a better handle on what type of plants to choose. Because you can, you, you know, I, this, is, this is from personal experience. You can choose plants that are hardy in your hardiness zone, but they don't grow well for you. And lots of times people think that they have a black thumb or a brown thumb because of that. But it can also be that you have a different soil. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to put a, a rhododendron or an azalea in a limey soil. They mm-hmm. like acid soils. So that's that's one way that people uh, at home can can use the library. Uh, the the very first the the heart of the library though is the topics app, and what we have there is, you know, you go to our homepage, you click on the topics section, and we have a visual directory. So you, I know we're all familiar with the, not all of us, but the old card lot, you know, card catalog in libraries, uh, you know, where we had to dig through index cards. And now libraries have essentially <clears throat> transferred that information to an online type of format, but what we've done is put it in a visual format. So, you know, on beneficial insects, we have a picture of a bee on farming and food. We have a guy on a tractor, you know, that type of thing where, you know, it's quick, it's easy. It Each uh, topic says what it is. And <clears throat> we're working ourselves up to 50 topics right now. We're, I think, at about 42 or something like that. So the content is divided up according to topics that were actually vetted by the sustainability committee at GardenCom. So, um, you know, what we asked them what they thought were the most important topics to be covering. So um, that's where we got those ideas. I've expanded on those a bit. And um, what people will find is, again, uh, the hardiness zone and map pins that show where the collaborators, the folks that have supplied our information, where they're located. So you can go by zone. You know, if you're in zone seven or zone seven B or seven A, there's a legend on the side that you know has the colors and tells you what zone each color is. And you just, you know, pick a map pin and see what that collaborator has. So in the D.C. area, um, some of our collaborators are American University Arboretum, uh, Dumbarton Oaks, which you might not think (laughs) uh, would be, uh, you know, appropriate, but they have some really interesting information about I don't know if you if you had read about this, Kathy, they had an issue with runoff coming mm-hmm. you know down the mountain oh yeah they have they're on such a steep steep slope um going down to rock creek park it's you know a very steep grade and i've witnessed the erosion over the years and i also saw the that their you know extensive repair project that they did and was impressed that they you know basically pulled back the whole garden to install that new system Right. And, and so they, they have some information about, you know, what, what they, what the issue was and what they were doing to remedy it in our library. Um, and I, you know, for, for people like yourself, Kathy, I, I think it's a really good resource for starting stories and, um, you know, doing research and just finding interesting topics to cover is, uh, you know, especially with the podcast, you're constantly looking for new information. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the other uh, places, uh, other collaborators are University of Maryland Arboretum and Botanical Garden in the U.S. Botanic Garden, the U.S. National Arboretum. Um, and uh, thank you for taking us to the Delaware Botanical Gardens at Pepper Creek on at one of our uh, garden com meetings. Uh, that's been a, a wonderful, wonderful resource for us. They were very happy to participate. Great to hear that. And um, you referred to uh, going back a little bit on your previous 
comment about how you could use that EPA zone map and narrow it down to just where you're growing and a little bit about the brownfields. I think I used that to check out our community garden, which is across the street uh, because it used to be a HVAC business. And I suspected as much and it did turn out to be a brownfield underneath that, that it was rated for that. Uh It's also surrounded by auto mechanic shops um, for over 20 years and of course oil and, and gas spilling there. So I was very surprised. We of course amended the soil and most people are, are growing in raised beds and that sort of thing, but it's still fascinating to find that out. And you wouldn't know that if you hadn't witnessed that, if I didn't know 20 years ago that that business was there, you would just come up across the community garden. So same thing in your own home um, landscape when you were saying that it might not be your fault when a plant passes away, of course, because (laughs) I've seen cases of previous owners soak their entire landscape in Roundup, um, like just kill everything and soak it into the soil. And then the new person comes in and moves in and they're just, you know, in tears because they can't figure out why everything they plant just immediately dies. Um, so having at least some parts of that puzzle is a great resource. Well, and, you know, it's so much more of a problem in urban areas. Um, you know, here in New Jersey, we have so many Superfund sites. And, but I, I think, um, you know, one of our collaborators is Pittsburgh Botanic Garden. And I, I think that, you know, that's a good example of uh an attempt to do, uh, you know, not just remediation, but make something good out of uh, something awful. Uh, I don't think I would particularly want to grow food plants there, but uh, but they they've done a lot of work at at that location. Mm-hmm. And I think we actually need to dial it back a little bit further, Lois. And I realize let's define sustainability. Um, ah. Some of those topics and principles, because sometimes the term sustainability gets confused with organic gardening or permaculture, and some of those could be part of sustainability, right? But it's not the entire definition of a sustainable garden or landscape. Oh, you're you're touching on my favorite topic. Uh, well, my second favorite topic. Uh, my first favorite topic is uh, stormwater management, but we won't go there unless you want to. <laughs> um, so the uh, it's very simple to me, and I, you know, I don't want to uh, try to talk about the whole of sustainability. Although my definition for sustainable gardening really does apply, and that's it's very simple. Everybody makes it so complicated. All it is, is using nature's resources without using them up. That's all it is. And, you know, if you, if you think about pretty much every aspect of life, you know, there's, there's all kinds of complexities around this. Um, You know, we all want to move off of fossil fuel automobiles into electric and, but, you know, you really have to ask yourself is lithium battery are lithium batteries any more sustainable than fossil fuel i don't pretend to know the answer to that but it, it you know it's like you have to look at the whole picture hmm. very true and it does get so complicated and i think that's what scares people away a bit from it um they're like what is the better of two choices if neither choice is that great you know right. and how can we rank them and how can we evaluate it for themselves? They would love to have the answers readily in front of them. Well, that that's part of the service that the Sustainable Gardening Library provides. Um, not not in the Delmarva area, but uh, we have a, a collaborator in Connecticut. The uh, extension service up there has a, an extensive, extensive collection of information all for the home gardener. Another one that does that is the Barnegat Bay Partnership and uh, by the Jersey Shore, um, which for those of us that live in the more northerly part of the mid-Atlantic, um, they have plant lists 
by region of the state, you know, physiographic region of the state. So, um, yeah, uh, people can find that. That's one of the things that I think people really look for is plant lists. And almost all of, I'd say probably 80%, 75 to 80% of our collaborators have plant lists. Um, And some of them are very extensive. Um, uh, University of Maryland Arboretum, for example, has um, native plant lists and native plant lists for shade and pollinator planting lists in the library. So, you know, whether you have sun, whether you have shade or whether you're looking for pollinators, you can find that information in our library. you know, under the proper category, like native plants or beneficial insects. Hmm. And so because we have listeners all over the world, I love the fact that you're sorting, sourcing local sources. Um, Is it only the United States or is it all of North America into Canada or is it international? Well, we, our original vision for it and we'll, we're still working on this, is I, I would love for it to be worldwide. Um, Australia is very into uh, sustainable uh, gardening and agriculture and sustainability in general, and they're big promoters of uh, permaculture. So, um, yeah, uh, we are currently working on trying to recruit um, uh, one of the gardens in Vancouver. Nice. And anybody, of course, anywhere they are can access it online, but it just wouldn't be that they might not find a a local source to them. Do you have any gaps in the United States map that you're looking to fill in too? Um, Well, we have a lot on both coasts and, um, you know, a lot has a lot of how we can get people to participate is the culture of the area. So we have a very large number of um, collaborators in the Seattle area. Uh, it, uh, we're pretty densely covered uh, in in the state of uh, Washington, in and around Seattle. Uh, and I was excited to uh, we're just going to be bringing on board soon our first um, water utility, uh, Seattle Public Utilities. Um, has a, a rain rainwater management program for homeowners. Well, we have um, one third of all the content providers are in the New York to Virginia area. So we have, you know, like 102 or 105, something like that. Um, so like, you know, pretty much uh, we've covered the Midwest um, certain parts of the Midwest, we could use a few more collaborators. Um, the Southwest and the mountain areas. But part of the issue there is there's, you know, Montana doesn't have, I think they have like one or two public gardens mm. and only a couple of colleges. So the pool of collaborating content providers that we can pull from is very small in certain parts of the country and you know uh in the rockies there's not a lot of you know there's nature and the environment but there's not a lot of population so um but we're what we decided to do was um you know go with the people who were interested in us right away and then we're going to kind of move in from the coasts and um fill in the the missing blanks, as it were, over time. Hmm. So obviously most of your partners are public gardens and research institutions like colleges and universities, Uh, but are there any private companies or corporations that are part of it? Um, No. (laughs) And and the the reason for that is, goes all the way back to our original survey with um, then Garden Writers Association. Uh, and we we did a survey and asked members, we had a whole list of, of groups to choose from, who they felt were the most trustworthy uh, providers of this type of information. And public gardens and universities were neck and neck 
uh, at about 80, 81%. And then I was very surprised that government agencies was next in line at about, you know, somewhere around 65, 70%. And then everybody else was so far below that, below 50%, that we just felt that that wasn't viable at the time. And, you know, uh, commercial enterprises have a vested interest. We want objective information to be, you know, to be giving out to people. And it doesn't mean that people aren't doing good work. It just means that they're not appropriate candidates for the library. And I, you know, I can point to one, <clears throat> one that I'm aware of, um, Cashy, the serial has a program for farmers mm-hmm. that um, it's a, it's a very difficult process to be certified organic for a farmer. It's very expensive and it takes at least three years uh, to accomplish. And a lot of smaller farmers who are the ones that want to be organic can't afford that. And so Cashy has <clears throat> established a program for them um, that's a transitional certification. So it means they're they're working their way towards their organic certification, but they don't have it yet. So it's a good it's a good program, but it's not appropriate content for us. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, I think it's, it's so it's Kashi K A S H I cereals. I think it's K A I S H I. S H I. Oh, okay. Yeah, I clearly don't eat that product. <laughs> haven't <laughs> stared at the, haven't stared at that cereal box on the table in front of me. Yeah, I could be uh, wrong on the spelling, but mm-hmm. um, okay. Yeah, I've seen them uh, around in some of their green programs. I think they're fellow members of Green America that is a um, green certification program that I'm in as well. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to what the home gardener could do to garden sustainably and maybe even how some of those practices can help um, solve some of our environmental issues or affect climate change. Wow. That's a lot to cover. I I think uh, there are programs that have been around for a long time, like green alleyways in the Midwest, um, Chicago and Minneapolis, I think, or at least someplace in Minnesota has has had a program like that in the past. And um, what that is is, you know, in in older parts of um, towns and cities there are these um, alleyways where the garages were all behind the houses were all built along a lane. Mm -hmm. And um, over time, particularly, uh, you know, people's cars no longer fit in those small garages and start parking on the street and, you know, oil and and other pollutants come off the cars and wash into the street and then get carried into the stormwater sewers and then into the rivers and so on and so forth. And um, some of these programs help homeowners uh, either by helping them to design or helping them pay uh, to have the uh, alleyways be made more green uh, through putting, you know, tearing up the old concrete and putting in permeable paving and suitable plants and, you know, where necessary, making bioswales and and, uh, rainwater gardens and so forth. Um, Another example of that is uh, planned communities. uh, I forget the name of it, uh, Applegate or something like that, near Longwood um, is a planned community where uh, the there's a lot of open space behind the houses that's kept in a meadow. And the, you know, there's a walking part of the meadow is mowed so that people can walk through it. But it's uh, basically an open space, an open community space. And, and those are the types of things that um, people can do themselves. You know, if you live in an established community, um, get together with your homeowners association or with your neighbors if you're not in an association and try to plan 
so that a small section of everyone's garden is given over you know, to some type of sustainable landscaping. People love pollinators and, you know, a, a lot of the plants that pollinators love are colorful and uh, flowers that many people already want to have in their garden. And the idea is just to uh, make mini greenways uh, through your neighborhood. It, you know, every little bit helps if, you know, if a million people give over, you know, a 12 square foot area or a 20 square foot area of their garden, uh, it each one individually is not so much, mm-hmm. but all together we can accomplish something. And I think so many people are, um, you know, despairing that, you know, what can I do? There's nothing I can do. This is such a big problem. Well, you can do something. I love that. I especially like that, you know, kind of those campaigns where every school child gives a penny and then that becomes millions, that each of us can do a little something. And I totally agree, uh, Lois, especially on the pollinator plants that are so beloved by the pollinators most are the ones that we love too. Because right. I think there's there's something um, in our Jungian brain that we're all, why are we attracted to these flowers? We're not pollinators. Why do we love the sense of them so much too? Uh, that fragrance and that beautiful color, you know, doesn't really make sense uh, on the human level why we're so obsessed with roses and, and peonies and those sorts of things or lotuses and water lilies, but we are. Right, right. So another um, thing that people can do, and I, you know, I know rain barrels are like old hat at this point, but you don't have to use a rain barrel. You can um, direct the the runoff from your roof, you know, into a garden. It doesn't necessarily have to be a rain garden. Um, These are not difficult things to start. And I I think you had said in your book, um, Ground Cover Revolution, to start small. Mm-hmm. And and that's the what I would recommend with sustainability. You know, you, if you can afford to and if you have the motivation to, you know, uh, yes, you could rip out everything and start over. But, you know, I'm not a purist. I... I enjoy my exotic plants as much as anybody, but, um, you know, I work around, we, we live in the woods here, so there's already a lot of native vegetation and we, you know, we add to those things um, as we can and as, as the spirit moves us. But there's, you know, there's uh, cone flowers and black-eyed Susans and cardinal flowers and, um, you know, not the invasive type of honeysuckle, uh, which we seem to be blessed with an abundant amount of the invasive type, but uh, so we're always hacking it back. But yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And that was that was really the motivation behind the Sustainable Gardening Library. Um, <clears throat> We recognize that people exist along a spectrum, you know, from from not sustainable at all to totally sustain, you know, zero net zero energy, net zero this, net zero that, and you know, people that are extreme at both ends. We all we're trying to do is move people from being less sustainable to being more sustainable, and. <clears throat> the library is a tool to help them move along that continuum. Hmm. So it's a great point. And I love that it's not all or nothing. You're either sustainable or you're not. You're working your way, right? You're working your way towards full sustainability, but it's always going to be a process. Well, Kathy, you know, no garden is truly sustainable because when the gardener dies or Mm. moves, the garden stops you know it's uh, it's an artificial gardens are artificial constructs that people take plants from here and there and arrange them in the way that they want and 
when the gardener is gone, over time, if left alone, you're going to have a succession of, of natural plants come in and start taking over, hopefully not invasives. Mm -hmm. And you could make a sustainability plan, a succession plan, so to speak, for your own garden as well. Sure. Yes, definitely. Yep. But yeah, I do take your point that, you know, the second you stop weeding, second you stop maintaining, uh, then it starts to rewild, but maybe not in the way that you'd like it to rewild. Right. And I, I think that's worse in urban and suburban areas where there's uh, not such a uh, seed bank mm -hmm. existing in the ground of native plants as there once was. Yep. Yeah, you can't do the, the burn clearing in an urban area for many reasons. <laughs> and then what's going to come back is not going to be a whole field of Virginia bluebells, say. It's probably going to be a lot of that uh, invasive honeysuckle, uh, right. from my experience. But um, So let's talk about some final thoughts. So if you were a new homeowner, new gardener, just moved into a place and you were starting from scratch, uh, what advice would you give them? Do nothing. Wait a whole year because you don't know what's there. Uh, you know, I've seen this happen so many times where, uh, and, and it's understandable, you know, you got a new house, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a new to you house and you want to get out there and, and get going, but wait and see, you know, a good example is this time of the year, uh, bulbs are uh, popping up. Uh, maybe they're already finished down by you, but um, you're not going to know that if you start digging everything up in the middle of the summer or the, you know, the fall um, before the bulbs have a chance to appear. So, um, you know, and perennials, the same thing. Uh, some perennials die so far back to the ground that you can't really see that there's been a plant there. Um, peonies, I think, are a good example of that. Uh, not a native plant, but nevertheless, uh, most people, many people have them in their gardens. And uh, just, just wait to see what happens. Uh, you might get some really nice surprises there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can be really blessed by what that former homeowner or gardener did there. Right. Well, thank you so much, Lois, for sharing some sustainable gardening practices for homeowners and home gardeners and telling us about the, all the resources available to them at the sustainable, if I can say that, sustainable gardening library. Um, how can people contact you and how can they find out more? Well, um, they can find the library at www.sustainablegardeninglibrary.org or just Google Sustainable Gardening Library. And our companion website is the Sustainable Gardening Institute, um, the sustainablegardeninginstitute.org. And there's contact um, pages or uh, menus on both of those sites. So. Uh, I won't try to give you my my email because it's so long, uh, but it's eldervries at sustainablegardeninglibrary.org if, if you want to try that. Excuse me, sustainablegardeninginstitute.org. And we'll have a link up to the institute and the library on this podcast in the notes. So thank you again, Lois, for sharing and for being part of the Garden DC podcast. It's been a pleasure, Kathy. Thank you so much. Golden Ragwort Plant Profile Golden Ragwort Pacara Aurea is also known as Senecio, Golden Groundsill, Butterweed, False Valerian, Coughweed, and Squawweed. Golden ragwort has bright green glossy foliage that hugs the ground and stays evergreen in mild climates. In the spring, it sends up stems between a foot or two high that have black buds at the tip. These buds soon open to reveal golden yellow daisy-like flowers that last for several weeks. 
The basal foliage spreads along the ground and forms a dense ground cover. It will naturalize in moist areas and self-sow around the garden, if you let it. To curtail that, get out your pruners and deadhead the flowers at the base once the blooms are finished. Although part of this plant's charms are the puffs of spent flowers and its seed head. While it prefers moist soils, it will tolerate drier conditions as well as occasional flooding. Divide golden ragwort in the spring. Other than that, it is maintenance-free. The flowers are attractive to bees and butterflies, and like most aster family members, golden ragwort is deer and rabbit resistant. It is untroubled by most pets and is practically disease-free. Golden ragwort, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, my Carolina allspice shrub is blooming away and the fragrance is fantastic. Over at the community garden plot, the Yukon gold potatoes I had planted a month ago are starting to pop above the surface. And so I am looking forward to a nice crop of potatoes by the end of this summer. In local gardening news, we have some upcoming events to tell you about, including the Fona Garden Fair on Saturday, April 29th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that is put on by the Friends of the National Arboretum on the grounds of the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. There are vendors and activities for the whole family from 9 to 4, but the plant sale itself is limited from 9 to 11 a.m. to Fona members only. And yes, you can join at the door if you want to have access early into that plant sale. Then after 11 a.m., it is open to the public. And it's free to attend the event. It's rain or shine. And you can find out more details at fona.org. That's F-O-N-A dot org. Another plant sale to look out for is Saturday, May 6th from 9 a.m. to 12 noon. The Beltsville Garden Club plant sale is taking place in the Roosevelt parking lot centerway in Greenbelt, Maryland. That is also rain or shine. And the details for that are at beltsvillegardenclub.org. A garden tour that I highly recommend is the Shepherd Park Garden Tour on Sunday, May 7th from 2 to 5 p.m. This is a self-guided walking tour that showcases beautiful landscapes in the Shepherd Park Colonial Village and North Portal Estates neighborhoods of Washington, D.C. Uh, there's unique gardens of various styles. The tickets are $15 per person, and you can find out more about that at shepherdpark.org and look for the annual garden tour tab. And then finally, on Saturday, May 13th at 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. is the Garden Mart Plant Sale hosted by the Silver Spring Garden Club. That's their annual plant sale fundraiser. And near and dear to my heart, as I am president of the Silver Spring Garden Club, and that's our biggest event of the year. It takes place at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, at the Visitor Center on the outside terrace to the right of the main entrance. And you can find out more details about that at silverspringgardenclub.com. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. 
Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Good day, everybody. It's Dr. A back in the garden with the last word. Well, today's last word from Dr. A is about some people I met this weekend. I had a wonderful garden exchange here where people came to the garden. Uh, there, were, there were hundreds of people for our annual tour of gardens in our little town of Athens, Georgia. And they just love this stuff. And, I know in my garden I got to talking about all the cool plants and I have a lot of cool color. Uh, I worked at the trial gardens for a long time at the University of Georgia and oh boy, the annuals that we displayed were spectacular. And I even had a few, even though it was very early, I even had a few out here in my garden. And didn't I meet people who just thought that annuals were beneath them? I mean, really, uh, I mean, this is gardening. Uh, and gardening by its very definition includes trees and shrubs and perennials and annuals. And, oh boy, they were annual snobs. I just thought a marigold was the worst thing ever. And who in the right word would, would actually grow zinnias? I mean, zinnias were grandmother's plants and were way above that. Well, let me tell you, as I told them, that the breeding on annuals and color is spectacular. I mean, 10 years ago, we never heard of a caliber cola or a scavola, uh, I mean, ever. And now they're commonplace in all landscapes and commonplace means successful. So I, I, I had to have a few words with, with these people, but the few words I had, I hope were encouraging. Gardening is for everything and for every plant that you can have some success with. I mean, goodness, now that we have bread and patience, so they're not susceptible to downy mildew, I have impatience in all my shady areas. I have impatience beside native plants that are perennial. So there is no such thing as a bad plant in the garden. Only a bad gardener who doesn't realize that there are some great plants out there. I love gardeners, I love plants, and I have a little trouble with snobs. Uh, don't get me started on taxonomic snobs, but those who look their nose down on annuals simply aren't smelling well. This is Dr. A with the, the last word on annual snobs, but let's have fun. Let's go garden. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Thank you.
You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine. Thank you.